Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Last week I got the first word of the book of Exodus uh, done, and and, uh, hopefully we'll go a little bit faster today. The first seven verses of Exodus chapter 1 start with a list of names. Jacob, the list of Joseph, uh, Jacob's sons, and as I said, links back to the story of Exodus. Verse 6 tells us that the children of Israel had multiplied from the original 70 to a vast number of people during the intervening 400 years between those two books. This morning I want to pick up from verse 8 and read with you to the end of the chapter. I'm reading in the Living Bible if you want to follow me. And it reads like this. Then eventually a new king came to the throne of Egypt who felt no obligation to the descendants of Joseph. He told his people, these Israelis are becoming dangerous to us because there are so many of them. Let's figure out a way to put an end to this. If we don't and war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us and escape out of our country. So the Egyptians made slaves of them and put brutal taskmasters over them to wear them down under heavy burdens while building the cities of Python and Ramesses as supply cities for the king. But the more the Egyptians mistreated and oppressed them, the more the Israelis seemed to multiply. The Egyptians became alarmed and made the Hebrew slavery more bitter still, forcing them to toil long and hard in the fields and to carry heavy loads of mortar and brick. Then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, instructed the Hebrew midwives, their names were Shipra and Puah, to kill all the Hebrew boys as soon as they were born, but to let the girls live. But the midwives feared God and didn't obey the king. They let the boys live too. The king summoned them before him and demanded, Why have you disobeyed my command and let the baby boys live? Sir, they told him, the Hebrew women have their babies so quickly that we can't get there in time. They are not slow like the Egyptian woman. And God blessed the midwives because they were God-fearing women. So the people of Israel continued to multiply and to become a mighty nation. And because the midwives revered God, he gave them children of their own. Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people to throw the newborn Hebrew boys into the Nile River, but the girls, he said, could live. As I began to look at this chapter, a question occurred to me, and it was, why were the children of Israel still in Egypt after 400 years, 400 years after Joseph? Now, if you go back into the story of Genesis, we know that the famine lasted seven years and that when Jacob and the rest of his family came down to Joseph in Egypt, the famine had been underway two years. It says that in Genesis 45 verse 6. So there were five more years until the seven-year famine was over. And although God gave permission for Jacob to go down to Egypt to see his son, I'm not sure that that was tantamount to permission to stay there for that length of time. Canaan was their inheritance, and it was the land of God-given promise. Now, I can understand why they would want to stay while Joseph was the prime minister of Egypt. They had a place of great favor because of Joseph. But even Joseph knew that they were to go home, and when he was about to die, asked them to take his bones back to the land of promise. Why, Why didn't they? Why is it that 400 years later, they are still here? Now, initially, Egypt was a place of prosperity, of privilege, and of comfort. 
Egypt was indebted to Joseph, and as a result, his people enjoyed great favor. Egypt also was the most advanced and most sophisticated nation of the world at that time, and it must have held great attraction for them. That combination, privilege and the sophistication of Egypt, would have been a combination that truly was hard to turn your back on. But it only took a couple of generations for Egypt to become their new normal, their home in more ways than simply a geographical address. The people became thoroughly Egyptianized. You say, well, Don, how do you know that? The text doesn't actually say that. No, you're right. The book of Exodus doesn't tell us, but later prophets reflecting on this time did speak about it. So in Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 5 and 10, it says, I promised them that I would take them out of the country of Egypt and bring them into a country that I had searched out for them, a country flowing with milk and honey, a jewel of a country. And at that time, I told them, get rid of the vile things that you've become addicted to. Don't make yourselves filthy with the Egyptian no-god idols. I alone am your God. But they rebelled against me and wouldn't listen to a word I said. None got rid of the vile things that they were addicted to. They held on to the no-gods of Egypt as if for dear life. I seriously considered inflicting my anger upon them in force right there in Egypt. Then I thought better of it. I acted out of who I was and not just how I felt. And I acted in a way that would evoke honor, not blasphemy, from the nations around them, nations who had seen me reveal myself by promising to lead my people out of Egypt, and then I did it. I led them out of Egypt into the desert. So they were addicted to idolatry. Joshua 24 verse 14 says something near the same. So now Joshua says, fear God and worship him in total commitment. Get rid of the gods your ancestors worshipped on the far side of the river, that's the Euphrates, and in Egypt. And then in Amos chapter 5, verse 26, it says, Did you bring me sacrifices and grain offerings during those 40 years in the wilderness? Referring to the Exodus, O house of Israel, certainly not. You carried along your king Sukkoth and Kayun, your man-made god of Saturn, your images, your star god, which you made for yourselves. But you brought me none of the appointed sacrifices. So these prophets, speaking and reflecting about that 400 years of pretty much silence as far as the book of Exodus is concerned, talks about the fact that they were thoroughly Egyptianized. The people of Israel, Jacob's family, went down into Egypt to preserve life, 400 years later, life is not exactly what they have. They're caught in idolatry and slavery. And that story of leaving God's land of promise and trying to find life outside the jurisdiction of his purposes and promises and ending up in dire straits has echoes of other stories throughout the scripture. And two come readily to mind. The first is the book of Ruth, and it has striking similarities to the book of Exodus. And... It starts, it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Ancient sages say that whenever you find the words and it came to pass, that it was always a prelude to tragedy. It says, they said, when things come to pass, it seems that the story really has a happy ending. The pressure and the duress of famine drove that particular family from the, premise, uh, from the promised land as the former famine had driven Jacob and his family from the land. This family and Ruth don't go to Egypt, they go to Moab, but both of them are outside the borders of the land that God had promised to Israel. 
And as you read the story, it's hard to see, it's not hard to see why they took that option. Ostensibly, there were sound reasons for their choice. Obviously, the famine that gripped the land involved significant shortages. But in addition to that story in Ruth, it seems that the children of the family had health issues. Comorbidity seems to be the in-word to describe the situation. Their names, the names of the children, provide a clue. Mehalon means to be ill or weak, and Chilion means to be pining or consumptive. It seems that the birth of these children indicated that they, they, they struggled in health. And in the face of our difficult circumstances, that family opted to leave the promised land and go to Moab. Temporarily, of course, the, the idea of the word sojourn is just a temporary stay, and that's exactly how Berkeley translate it. They went to live for a while, but they ended up staying for a decade, and tragically, they lost the very thing that they went out seeking to save. The two boys and the father died in Moab. In the New Testament, we have the story uh, the story that we call the parable of the prodigal son. It's another story of a person leaving his home, heading for a foreign land in search of life. It's another story that involves a famine, and it's another story where things come to pass in quite a tragic way involving significant loss. You say to me, well, Don, that's interesting, but how does that really, how is it relevant to me in the 21st century? Well, sometimes we get affected by famine. Now, not necessarily a famine of bread, but famines can come in different shapes and sizes and intensities. They can come affecting our relationships. They can come affecting our economics, our ministries, our mental health. We can find ourselves pressured in some area of famine. And when that famine strikes us, there's an ever-present temptation to leave God's appointed place and, and his purposes temporarily, of course, and find life outside his jurisdiction. And you see the young man or the young woman who says, there's no chance I'll find a partner, a life partner in this community. I've got to look outside. Or someone who says, there's no way I can meet my financial obligations and tithe at the same time. I'll stop. Temporarily, of course, just for a period. People who say, you know, look, I'm, I'm not happy with church at the moment, so I'm just going to stop going for a while. I need to have time for myself. The variation on the themes are seemingly endless, but the pattern is eerily similar. Ten years later, 40 years later, 400 years later, they've never made it back. And ironically, more often than not, the thing that they went out to save has been lost. Israel stayed in Egypt for 400 years. They became thoroughly Egyptianized as far as their worship was concerned. And possibly as a consequence of that idolatry, things change and the story takes a sinister turn. In verse 8, now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. The phrase a new king is not found elsewhere in the scripture and it indicates something quite different than simply the natural order of descent from father to son. It's not that a son now takes over from a father. When Stephen comments on this incident in his defense speech in Acts chapter 7, he says there arose another king uh, and he uses the Greek word hetros, which is another king of a completely different kind. And it indicates a dynastic change, possibly as a result of a coup or maybe conquest. Josephus, the Jewish historian, said that the government was transferred to another family. And this new dynasty wasn't bound by the former precedents and was free to adopt new principles. They felt no loyalty to Joseph. Joseph. 
With the passing of 400 years, perhaps they weren't even aware of Joseph. Or if they were, they may have thought that the debt that Egypt owed Joseph had been fully paid. And now this burgeoning ethnic minority, while previously being an asset, was now rapidly becoming a liability. Even after 400 years, the Israelites were still regarded by the native-born Egyptians as strangers, as outsiders, as foreigners. And they were called by the name Hapiru. Now, some scholars say that's the basis of the word Hebrew. But in that context, it had strong negative connotations. It would be equivalent to using the N-word to describe an Afro-American. A classic well-practiced policy followed by many governments and many rulers is to turn people's natural ethnocentric wariness of the stranger into blame, into fear, and into hatred. It plays upon the dislike of the unlike and turns it into a political weapon. And Pharaoh, like so many rulers after him, is clever enough to use popularist tactics against an invented enemy within. So the people of Israel are progressively enslaved and driven to labor in building the Egyptian system. Now, verse 12 tells us that the policy didn't work and the Israelites multiply. So Pharaoh, in verse 15, ups the ante. He seeks to engage the midwives in his genocidal purposes. The Hebrew midwives are the only people in this chapter who are given names. Even Pharaoh is not named, but these two women, Shipra and Pura, are recorded for posterity. The phrase Hebrew midwives is a little bit ambiguous in the original language. It could either mean midwives that are Hebrews, or it could mean midwife to the Hebrews, in which case they may well have been Egyptian women. That possibility is quite likely since one wonders whether it's realistic to ask whether Pharaoh would have expected the Hebrew woman to murder their own people's children. Perhaps the ambiguousness of the scriptures on this point is actually deliberate. We, we don't know which people Shipra and Pua belong to because the particular form of moral coverage that they display and exhibit in their refusal to obey Pharaoh trans, uh, transcends nationality and race. They were asked to commit a crime against humanity and they refused. One of the landmarks of modern international law was the judgment against the Nazi war criminals in the Nuremberg trials of 1946. And it established that there are certain crimes in relation to which the claim, I was simply obeying orders, is no defense. There are moral laws that are higher than the state. There are instructions that are morally wrong to obey. And these two women, whether they were Egyptians or Hebrew, defy Pharaoh in the name of simple humanity because they feared God. And while that phrase, they fear God, may lean more toward the idea that they Hebrew woman, it may also simply indicate, as Romans reveals, that all people have the moral law written deep within them. The story of these two heroines conclude with the phrase, God made them houses. Now, the idea of a house here is that of a family. Uh, Italian commentator Samuel Luzzatto offers an insightful interpretation when he says, sometimes in the ancient world, women who became midwives because they weren't able to have children of their own. And he suggests that this is the case with Shipra and Pua. Because they feared God and saved the lives of the children, God gave them measure for measure. He gave them children of their own. 
Let me conclude by trying to draw out of this story of Exodus some thoughts that I think will be hopefully relevant to us. The Bible in general, and the Exodus story in particular, is full of examples of supposedly unimportant people who actually have an incredible influence on the way things turn out. And in Exodus, nearly all of these people are women. Women without whom we would have no Moses and no Exodus. Of course, we have Shipra and Puah in this chapter. In the next chapter, we have Moses' mother, Jochebed, and his sister, Miriam, and Pharaoh's daughter. Then in chapter 4, we have Zipporah, Moses' wife, who saves his life. As you go through the scriptures, without Ruth, there would have been no David. Abigail saves David's conscience and Michael saves his life. The widow of Zarephath saves Elijah and Ebed-Melech saves Jeremiah and a little nephew saves Paul's life. Insignificant people who have a fantastic effect on the whole story. Now we may not all be called to do the great things that Moses was called to do, but we can do small things with a spirit of greatness. And as Exodus unfolds, we'll note that not only are we delivered by God, but we are then instructed and empowered to be deliverers in the purpose of God to other people. Not all of us will be as great. Uh, the deliverance will be as great as it was in Moses' life. Some of, some of us will be like the midwives. But the thing is, you never quite know when you are walking and working in your small, apparently insignificant field, that the deliverances that you are part of may be bringing forth someone who will have great effect. Let me, let me finish with a story that wonderfully illustrates my point. During Stalin's reign of terror in Soviet Russia, hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions of people, were made political prisoners and were sent off to the icy Siberian camps. One such man was a medical doctor by the name of Boris Nikolaevich Kornfield. Now, Kornfield was a Jew. He wasn't a devoted Jew, and he had tried desperately to assimilate into Russian culture and life. He had tried in language and dress and social habits to make himself as much like his Russian neighbours as was possible. He supported Lenin's revolution and the communist regime. And to be fair, given Christian Russia's record of persecuting the Jews, the communists look a better option to Cornfield. Christian Russia had slaughtered the Jews. Cornfield felt that perhaps atheistic Russia could save them. Now, we don't know what crime Dr. Cornfield was purported to have committed, only that it was, committed, it was considered a political crime. Perhaps he dared to suggest to a friend that the leader Stalin was fallible. Maybe he was accused of even just harboring such thoughts. It took no more than that to become a political prisoner in Russia at this time. But Cornfield was sent to a camp for political subversives. Ironically, such camps were a good cure for anybody who harboured hopes or put trust in communism. The senseless brutality, the waste of lives, the trivialities called criminal charges made men like Cornfield have grave doubts about the system. And in such places, thoughtful men like Cornfield found themselves re-evaluating beliefs that they'd held from childhood. And so it was with this Russian doctor. He abandoned his socialistic ideals, but he did something more than that, beyond that, something that it would have horrified his forebears. Christ, uh, Boris Cornfield became a Christian. 
Cornfield had come into contact with a devout Christian in the camp, a well-educated and very kind prisoner. We don't know his name, but he shared with Cornfield God's love. This unidentified man would often pray the Lord's Prayer and Cornfield heard the words with a strange ring of truth. He pondered what this nameless Christian had told him and the more he reflected on it, the more he was changed within. Cornfield lived in better conditions than most other prisoners. The reason was that while most other prisoners were considered expendable, doctors were in short supply in these remote and isolated camps and the, and the authorities couldn't afford to lose a physician for both guards and other prisoners needed constant medical attention. No prison officer wanted to end up in the care of a doctor that he had cruelly abused, so the treatment of such men was somewhat more palatable than it would have been normal. One day, Confield was actually performing surgery on a guard that he had come to despise for his cruelty. The man had been knifed and an artery had been cut, and while suturing the blood vessel, he seriously thought of tying the thread in such a way that it would reopen after surgery and the guard would die quickly and no one would be wiser. He realised in that moment that his heart was burning with hatred. He despised his persecutors and he realised that he would gladly slay all of them given the chance. He became appalled at the level of hatred and violence that resided in his own heart. The violence and cruelty of the guards had, had spawned an insatiable hatred in his own heart. And what a deadly pr predicament. He was trapped by the very evil that he despised in others. Confield retied the sutures properly and found himself almost unconsciously repeating the words that he had heard from his fellow prisoner. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that have trespassed against us. Now doctors in the camp were, require, were required to sign decrees for prisoners to be imprisoned in a punishment block. A prisoner that the authorities didn't like or just simply wanted out of the way was sent to this block. It was solitary confinement in a tiny, dark, cold torture chamber of a cell. And the doctor's signature on the form certified that the prisoner was strong enough and healthy enough to withstand that punishment. That was, of course, nearly in every case a lie, and very few returned from the block alive. Like all other doctors, Cornfield had signed his share of these forms. What difference did it make? The authorities didn't need signatures anyway. They had other ways of legalising the punishment. A doctor who refused to sign probably wouldn't last long, short supply or no. Shortly after Cornfield began to pray for forgiveness, he stopped authorising punishments by refusing to sign the forms. Though he had previously signed hundreds of them, he now couldn't do it. Whatever it was that was happening within him would not permit him to do it. That rebellion was bad enough, but it didn't stop there. He turned in an orderly. Orderlies were drawn from a group of prisoners who cooperated with the prison authorities. They were given jobs that were less than a death sentence and they were hated by the other prisoners and considered traitors. One day Cornfield came upon an orderly who was busy eating the rations that were meant for patients in the hospital and Cornfield reported him to the camp commandant. The commandant found the claim somewhat curious since there had been a rash of recent murders in the camp and in each case the victim had been one who had laid a complaint against the orderlies. The offending orderly was placed in the punishment block for three days. The commandant officer felt that Cornfield's sudden refusal to 
signed the forms had become something of a nuisance and it seemed to him that this complaint might be the answer to the small problem since he had surely arranged his own execution. Kornfeld knew that his life would be in grave danger as soon as the orderly was released from the punishment block, so he went from sleeping in the barracks, which were controlled by the orderlies by night, and he knew that that would mean certain death, and began sleeping at the hospital. Along with the anxiety of not knowing what moment would be his last, he paradoxically found tremendous freedom. Having accepted the real possibility of death, Boris Kornfeld was now free to live. He signed no more forms sending men to their deaths. He no longer turned his eyes from cruelty or shrugged his shoulders when he saw injustice. He said what he wanted and did what he could. The hatred and violence had vanished from his own heart and he wondered if there were any man in Russia who knew such freedom. Cornfield wanted so badly to, sell, to tell somebody about his discovery, this new life of obedience and freedom. The Christian who had told him about Jesus had been transferred to another camp, so the doctor waited for the right moment for what he hoped would be the right person. One afternoon, he examined a patient that had just been operated on for intestinal cancer. The young man's eyes were sorrowful and suspicious. His face was deeply etched by the years that he'd already spent in the camp, and he reflected a depth of spiritual misery and emptiness that Cornfield had rarely witnessed. And so the doctor began to tell the young man what had happened to him, and once he started, it poured out and Cornfield couldn't stop. The patient was drifting in and out of the influence of the anaesthetic, but the doctor's passion caught his attention and held it, even though he was shaking with fever. All through the afternoon and late into the night, the doctor talked incessantly describing his conversion to Christ and his newfound freedom. And the patient knew that he was listening to an incredible confession. And although he was in pain from the operation and the pain was severe, he nevertheless hung on every word until he finally fell asleep. The young patient awoke early the next morning to the sound of rushing feet and a commotion coming from the operating room. His first thought was of the doctor, but his newfound friend didn't come. Then the whispers of the other patients told him of the doctor's fate. During the night, while the doctor was sleeping, someone had crept up beside his bed and dealt him eight blows on the head with a plasterer's mallet. Though his fellow doctors worked valiantly to save him in the morning, the orderlies carried out his still and broken form. Cornfield's testimony, however, did not die. The young patient pondered the doctor's last impassioned words, and as a result, he too became a believer. He miraculously survived the camp and went on to tell the world what he'd learned there. The name of that young patient was Alexander Isaevich Solzhenitsyn, and he wrote a book called The Gulag Archipelago. He went on to become one of the most significant writers and voices of the 20th century and has been credited with being the single most powerful force in the final dissolution of the Soviet Union. Boris Kornfeld might have felt disappointed that he was only able to share his faith with one person, but that one person has touched millions. You know, you might think that the level of the deliverance that you're called to minister is too small to be considered significant, but I would want to say to you, despise not the day of small things. Get about your sphere of midwifery, if I can put it that way. Be faithful in the level that is before you. It might be that you, like Shipra and Pua, give life to one who will change the world. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, 
feel free to visit our website gatewaychurch.org.nz.